sports fans. I don't know how many sports fans we have in the house, but um, our family does track with the the NCAA tournament, and we've got our brackets and all this good stuff. And uh, if you've been tracking at all, you've heard undoubtedly about Oral Roberts University, one of the Cinderella stories. I see we've got a fan down here. Uh, Cinderella stories from this year's tournament. Uh, they knocked off uh, Ohio State University, University of Florida, on their way to the Sweet 16, one of the 16 best basketball teams in the nation. So quite an accomplishment for a relatively small school without much of a basketball history. Uh, normally, these stories are celebrated in our culture. The media likes to make a big deal of that. Uh, but USA Today published a scathing opinion piece about Oral Roberts University. Um, Andrew, you're going to have to advance that for me or turn that on for me as we get there. Maybe. There we go. Uh, this is what Hamal Javari said. Founded by televangelist Oral Roberts in 1963, the Christian school upholds the values and beliefs of its fundamentalist namesake, making it not just a relic of the past, but wholly incompatible with the NCAA's own stated values of equality and inclusion. I do find that statement to be a bit ironic, don't you? Uh, this this uh, school should be excluded because they don't abide by the NCAA's policies of inclusion. Just something doesn't seem quite right there. The fact is, any and all anti-LGBTQ plus language in any school's policies should ban them from NCAA competition. They're saying this school should not even be allowed to participate because of its particular convictions. And we live in what's been called a cancel culture, don't we? This refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for individuals who have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. If you step outside the culturally accepted values, politically correct positions, you are shouted down, shamed, and sidelined. Your posts are deleted from social media. You are ostracized. You might even lose your job. I find it sobering to think that in some ways I think this, this cancel culture, this harshness has infiltrated even the church. Someone does something wrong and we are done with them. We throw them to the curb. We have very little tolerance for those who don't line up with our particular convictions and our relationships are often fragile. It doesn't take much for us to be offended. I say all that to say that God is not like that. God does not operate according to cancel culture, but operates according to what I call covenant culture. God doesn't give up on people. He doesn't cast them aside, right? He's patient, kind, merciful, unfailing in his love and covenant commitments. Uh, seems to be illustrated so wonderfully in an exchange between Peter and Jesus recorded in Matthew chapter 18. You know the context well. Peter asks Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive the person who has offended me? Seven times? What's the limit before I can just say I'm done with you? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, right? In other words, there's no end to the forgiveness that you are called to offer to a brother who offends you. 
And then Jesus, by means of a parable, reminds Peter how many times God has forgiven him. Well, God's persistent love is certainly on display here in Exodus. In Ezra, rather. Ezra. Remember which book we're in. Ezra. Israel had persisted in several hundred years of idol worship and open rebellion until God sent them into exile. They were put out of the land, separated from God's blessing. But even then, God did not cancel them. He showed faithfulness to his covenant promises and restored them once again. And this is what Ezra is all about. Uh, Very often we find ourselves in exile, right? We can sometimes feel that we are too far gone, that we have too much baggage, that our lives are too dysfunctional, that God has reached his limit of patience with us. We know the depths of our sin. We know uh, our selfishness and uh, the chronic nature of our rebellion. But Ezra reminds us that God doesn't give up on his people. And God has not given up on you either. We need that reminder. We need to hear it today because we feel like we would give up on us. (laughs) And we can can be grateful that God does not operate based on the values and policies of a cancel culture. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually a single volume. Um, Matter of fact, when we get to the end of Ezra, it's, it's a very abrupt ending. It's sort of a list of, Ezra highlights some, the sins of the people, and we're given a list of all the people who participated in that sin. That's how Ezra ends. It's not very cheerful, but it's not really the end of the narrative. We're intended to read Ezra and Nehemiah together to sort of get the big picture of what God is doing in restoring his people and bringing them back from from exile. Some have actually described Ezra and Nehemiah as a second exodus. And I actually think that's a helpful um, analogy or a helpful way of thinking about uh, these books. The first exodus was out of Egypt, right? And this second exodus is out of Babylon or out of exile. The first exodus was rather climactic, and it was a singular event, right? The people uh, marched out of Egypt um, after the death of the, the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. They marched across the Red Sea in mass uh, and saw Pharaoh's armies defeated. The, the second exodus, the exodus out of exile, was accomplished in stages. It was a little less spectacular. Uh, it was more of a process And so I want us to just think sort of big picture here. Uh, Looks like those animations are not going to work for us, so that's okay. Um, uh, First you have Zerubbabel. He he leads a a, a pretty sizable group out of Babylon. That's kind of the first wave that went back to the promised land. And um, that's recorded in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. And Zerubbabel was very focused on restoring, rebuilding the altar, uh, restoring, rebuilding the temple, uh, reestablishing the worship of God's people. So that, that was Zerubbabel's focus. And then you have Ezra, who came at a later time, about 60 years later. Um, this is recorded in the latter half of the book of Ezra, chapters 7 through 12. 
Um, and Ezra was, was not so concerned about the outward formal aspects of the nation's worship. He was concerned about the hearts of the people. He came to restore the people. And he taught the law and called the people to obedience uh, in, in God. And then you have uh, Nehemiah who came back and, and of course he rebuilt the walls of the city and the gates and he restored civic life. He kind of helped to organize the people in terms of their national identity. So the, these are the, the, the stages, three different stages of restoration. And right there between uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra, you actually have the story of Esther. So uh, that's kind of the, the, the picture here of, of those exile years and how God brought them, brought them back. And really, when we finish Ezra and Nehemiah, we're kind of finished with the history, the Old Testament history of Israel. And we're not done in our study in the Old Testament, right? We have a number of more books to, to look at, but, but this is really the history. Once we get to, to, to see Israel's restoration to the land, the rest of the books in the Old Testament are the, book, the writings, what's called the writings, or we sometimes might call them the books of poetry, uh, Proverbs, Psalms, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then also the prophets who were prophesying particularly around the time of the exile here. So, but really the history is, is sort of finished here with Ezra, Nehemiah. So I want to look at uh, a brief sketch of the book of Ezra uh, just to kind of give us an, an overview of the book and then we're going to look at some of the key decisions that were made by Zerubbabel and Ezra that were part of this return from exile. Uh, we're going to look at some snapshots here and kind of consider what it means for us to, to come back to God uh, from, from exile. So Zerubbabel, uh, the restoration of the temple Restoration of the Temple in chapters 1 through 6. And what I've called a, a new sheriff in town. Let's look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem." So after 70 years in exile, God providentially orchestrates the return of his people. And we see a very radical change in public policy here, don't we? When, uh, when Israel was carted off into exile by first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, they destroyed every vestige of Israel's worship. They tore down the temple, they carted off all the, the utensils and the furniture that was used in the temple, uh, they just wanted to, to totally destroy their national identity. And now we find a new king coming to power who had a very different philosophy. 
He wanted the subjects in his kingdom to be content, and so he gave them great freedom to be able to worship their gods as they saw fit. Again, all of this was being accomplished through the sovereign working of God. We're told that uh, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus the king. So God was accomplishing this in the heart of a pagan, godless king. We're also told that God had predicted these events. We're reminded that God had predicted these events through the prophet Jeremiah. It says here that uh, this was all done in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And here's at least part of what Jeremiah said. This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So before they ever left the land, God said, For 70 years you're going to be in exile. At the end of those 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And sure enough, God accomplished his word. Sometimes it seems that all was lost, but God always preserves a remnant one of the key words here in Ezra, a remnant, a small group who escape and uh, God faithfully uh, restores them in this way. So we then have the, what I'm calling the first wave. Zerubbabel leads this first wave of, um, of exiles back to the land. Um, it's the largest of the three deportations, but it's still relatively small. The vast majority of the Jewish people choose to continue to live there in Babylon. And we actually know from other sources that they prospered in Babylon. They actually did very well. Uh, many of them achieved positions of prominence and were highly respected. People like Daniel and Mordecai and Esther so it should not surprise us that a relatively small percentage chose to return at this time. And we also have here a sort of listing in chapter 2 of uh, kind of genealogies and the numbers of peoples from each tribe. All of that was very important. It's not so important to us. It makes for rather tedious reading, uh, but it was very significant for the people of Israel. First of all, we're tracing the line of King David, Right, which is very significant in regards to many of the prophecies made about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, that would come from the line of David. We, of course, have reference to all the descendants of Aaron, the priest, and the Levites. These were the ones that God had appointed to um, lead in, in the corporate worship of the nation. And so all of that is recorded here uh, regarding this first wave of exiles who return. And then there's priorities. Uh, certainly one of the things we see is just a very clear set of priorities. Uh, the first task was to reestablish the proper worship of the Lord. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So we have that very specific phrase there that they, they, they constructed the altar and they did it according to the specifications uh, that were recorded in the law. We're told that they celebrated the appointed feasts and offered the required 
sacrifices. So they, 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 did it, they did it the right way. And they got to work in terms of laying the foundations of the temple. This is one of the more um, yeah, just beautiful scenes here at the end of chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love, endured, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away." So they lay the very first stones there for the foundation of the temple, and they're just overcome with emotion. And, uh, and yet the, the reactions are different. The, the younger generation is like, whoo, this is awesome. You know, we're, we're seeing this finally come to fruition. We're, we're back in Jerusalem. We've never been here before. Uh, this is really great. And then you have the older generation who's actually crying. They had seen the previous temple. They had seen Solomon's temple. And we're not really exactly told what they were thinking or why they were crying, but we can kind of read between the lines a little bit, right? Uh, maybe there's just a sense of nostalgia. Wow, I can't believe we are, we are, this is so, I'm overwhelmed, we're back here. I never thought I'd see this place again. Never thought I'd see Jerusalem again. And so that could have been part of it. And actually this temple, this reconstructed temple was a lot smaller and less impressive than Solomon's temple. So that maybe was part of the emotion as well. I couldn't help but just think about how we each bring our particular perspectives to the table, right? Uh, certainly people of Israel did that. In their case, it was generational differences that caused them to view things differently. But even as we walk through uh, things we've walked through in the last year, uh, regarding COVID. I mean, we, we just bring different perspectives, different values, different backgrounds, different baggage with us when we try to navigate these things together. And I just find, I find this to be a wonderful picture of sort of the diversity of God's people uh, here in this common effort and a reminder to be sensitive to one another and to be sympathetic towards one another, put ourselves in the other person's shoes, right? People over here yelling, whoa, could have looked over and said, what's wrong with you, you know? And these people could have been like, hey, tone it down. This is a really powerful moment. <laughs> or this is discouraging. Or whatever they were thinking, you know. And yet, they were, they were both able to express their praise and worship to the Lord in their own way. Uh, certainly, it was not an easy task. Uh, what, what I call a bumpy road. Uh, not everyone was excited about the rebuilding of the temple. When Israel was taken off into exile, uh, it kind of left a power vacuum there in Jerusalem. And many other people from other nations had sort of taken those positions of influence, and they were not at all excited about uh, Zerubbabel showing up with uh, authorized uh, messages from the king and some uh, new agendas for the city. And so there's a series of attempts to try to, to disrupt the work of rebuilding the temple. Um, they tried to sort of infiltrate uh, 
the, uh, the, the, the workers, they, they threatened the workers, they voiced frustration with them, um, tried to establish a lot of bureaucratic paperwork and red tape to just sort of stymie things and slow things down. They slandered the Israelites, uh, made some false accusations about them, uh, drew their, question, their character into question, and eventually they were actually able to stop the work through political channels. Um, but God ultimately thwarted the plans of Israel's enemies, and the temple was brought to completion. Chapter 6, verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites, who had returned from the exile, ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. So kind of this capstone event they, uh, they celebrate Passover, maybe the key holiday, or a reminder again of God's deliverance out of Egypt. And they're, they're, really, uh, they're really resuming their previous position, right? They're living as God's distinct people. They've come out from among the, 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 the pagan uh, uh, nations and have reestablished themselves there in Jerusalem. So that's the work of Zerubbabel, uh, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the the proper worship of the Lord. And then we have Ezra. That's the second half of the book. And we have to remember that there's about a 60-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So Ezra leads a smaller second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem king had given them permission to return and to check on the condition of Jerusalem. Again, 60 years has passed. Ezra's quite concerned. Uh, how are people doing? Zerubbabel had implemented a lot of reforms and had accomplished a lot of good things, but, but uh, Ezra just had a, a burden to go and, and check on them. Ezra's particular um, area of expertise was the law. He had studied it. He was devoted to it, and he was passionate about teaching God's law to the people. So the king granted him permission, and he went back with that very specific mission in mind. And he really cleaned house. Um, Ezra found that the people had regressed since the time of Zerubbabel's reforms. Uh, the, the temple worship had been reestablished, but now Ezra has to address the hearts of the people. And specifically, he has to address this issue of intermarriage with the people of the land, the surrounding nations. Once again, they had begun to uh, drift into the worship of other gods. And Ezra was deeply, deeply concerned. So that's just a quick overview of Zerubbabel and Ezra and these two waves of return to the promised land. Uh, I want us now to just think for a moment again about some of the, the decisions, the actions that Zerubbabel and Ezra and the people took that were part of this return, this restoration from exile. And I mentioned before that sometimes we find ourselves in exile, don't we? We, we are very aware of our own sin. We know that we have a propensity, prone to wander, as the great hymn says, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
But we know our tendency to, to drift from devotion to the Lord. And I think as we look at Zerubbabel and Ezra and the people here, we, we, we see some of the, 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 the responses and some of the decisions that they made that I think are very instructive for us in pursuing the Lord and, and returning from our own exile. Number one, approach God on his terms. So we're just going to look at, at a few different snapshots here. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. So here's their, their first order of business is to construct the altar. They get they, Zerubbabel and that first group gets back to, to Jerusalem and their first order of business is to reconstruct the altar and offer the sacrifices. And they did it all according to the prescription, uh, the, the guidelines established in the law of Moses. They gave the, the, the altar was built according to those specifications. The, the sacrifices that were offered were done according to what was prescribed. They offered them at the appointed times that were prescribed in the law. They approached God on God's terms. My friends, we no longer have to offer blood sacrifices. We can be thankful for that. I remember the first time gotten a deer with my dad. I was probably about eight years old, and I about lost it. It was a gruesome scene. Uh, this would have been normal for these Jewish people, right, to have to bring their sacrifices and watch that animal being slaughtered. By God's grace, we don't have to bring blood sacrifices anymore. God has uh, ordained that we should approach him through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so this is the foundational decision of restoring a right relationship with God was to have to atone for their sin. And my friends, there's no way around it. You are sinners. I am a sinner. In our natural state, we're separated from God, estranged from Him, cut off from His blessings. And the first thing that has to happen for me to have any type of relationship with God is to atone for my sin. And this, is, this, this has been provided for us through Christ, and we must receive that gift. Approach God on His terms. So instructive for how this whole return from exile begins. Secondly, listen to God rather than to the crowd. There was all sorts of clamoring, right? Uh, a lot of opposition surrounding nations who said, you know, I, uh, you need to stop rebuilding the temple, right? And, and all of this opposition. Notice what happens here in chapter 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. 
And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So when we get to chapter 5, we, the, the, the temple project had been stopped because of intense and widespread opposition. Actually, the king had issued an order, a new king now, not Cyrus, that original king, but a new king had come to power. And the project had been stopped. But God sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to urge the people to finish the task. And I love what it says about them. It says that they prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Isn't that a great phrase? It just struck me this week. Uh, All of these different voices telling them to stop, but God was telling them to continue. And they chose to obey the voice of God delivered through these prophets instead of listening to the voices from the crowd. Several years ago, Ed Welch wrote a book entitled When People Are Big and God is Small. And that is a common problem that we have, isn't it? I mean, we have these constant flurry of voices from the media and from from Hollywood and from music and from influential people and Uh, we need to be reminded of who God is. We need people who will tell us about God and His greatness and remind us of His truth. It says in another point here in chapter 3, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundations. Despite the threats of the surrounding nations, despite the... The, the efforts of their enemies, they chose to obey. Right? They chose to listen to God rather than to the crowd. And I think when we think about this whole theme of, of exile, and sometimes we get caught up in the opinions of people, um, we need to remember that we serve an audience of one, right? That one day those voices will all be silenced and we'll stand before our Maker. And give an account for the deeds done in the body. And we think too, too little about, about God and about uh, the, the nature of our responsibility to Him. And we give too much attention to the voices of the crowd. Number three, take courage. Here's another really pointed episode here that I think characterizes these, these exiles as they were returning The king had commissioned Ezra to return. And and here at the end of chapter 7, we get a little insight into Ezra's thought process. Chapter 7, verse 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord was because of the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go with me. He took courage. Uh, he knew that God was, was with him. Uh, he knew that he was doing what God had commanded him to do, and so he took courage. It's a great word. He, he resolved, he uh, determined. Um, it, it's a 
it, it's, an, it's an effort word. There, there was something here. We're going to rehearse all the things that God was doing here, but there's something for Ezra to do. He had to commit himself to the task, to following after the Lord. Ezra was attempting something that would be very difficult and dangerous. It was a, an arduous journey of nearly 1,700 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. It would take them about four months to complete the journey. This is roughly Mackinac Bridge to Miami, Florida. And without a car, right? I mean, this was a massive undertaking. And Ezra had, uh, presumably, he, he had a, a stable position. He was well-respected. He had a good life in Babylon, and yet he took courage. He determined in his mind to undertake this great task. We know that there will be danger along the roads. We're going to think through that a little bit. They had received money from the king, and they had also raised money from the Jewish people who were living, still living in Babylon. So they're going to undertake this huge journey with women and children, young and old, all this money. How are they going to be protected? Ezra needed courage. You say, why does Ezra need courage? Wasn't he a Bible character? I mean, Bible characters just, they're like superheroes, right? They just know that they know how things are going to turn out. They don't, no, he didn't know how things were going to turn out any more than you or I would, right? He had the general promises of God, that God was going to restore his people. But for all he knew, he was going to die en route, he took courage. My friends, we, we need courage. Following Christ is not for the faint of heart. I don't know if anyone has misrepresented the gospel to you. I'm sorry if they did, but following Christ will not make your life easier. As a matter of fact, it will very likely make it harder. You'll all of a sudden have to swim upstream of the value system and the moral standards of the culture God has not called us to live in safety and security. We're going to have to take risk to exert effort to muster determination. It's actually used twice here of Ezra, once in chapter 7 and once in chapter 10, that he took courage or he needed to take, he was challenged to take courage. A great reminder to us. Number four, rehearse the sovereignty of God. There's another great scene here. It gives us the heart of these exiles. Ezra 8, verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. So again, they're undertaking this journey with a great amount of, of silver and gold. And so they gathered here at the the canal to organize for the journey. Ezra was embarrassed to ask the king for protection because he'd already been talking to the king about how great his God was. 
how his God is able to protect them. And so they just committed themselves to fast and to pray for a safe journey, and God answered that prayer. Here's just one of the instances where they rehearsed God's sovereignty and his protection. It comes up again and again and again. Chapter 1, verse 1, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple. Chapter 1, verse 5, God moved the hearts of the people to return. They were pretty settled there in Babylon, but God did a work to stir many of them to return to Jerusalem. Chapter 5, verse 5, God protected them in the face of opposition. Chapter 6, verse 22, God changed the attitude of the king of Assyria. Uh, They attributed that to God. It was God who, who made that happen. God's hand was on Ezra to give him favor with the king. Chapter 7, verse 6, God inspired this pagan king to honor the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 27, Ezra's commitment to prayer here in chapter 8, revealed where his trust was placed. And our commitment to or neglect of prayer also reveals where our trust is placed. Sovereignty of God, they rehearsed it. It was part of their, it had become ingrained in their worldview. And uh, we, again, sometimes think the world is just going crazy, right? This is a disaster. This is chaos. Who's making decisions, right? You would do well to stop and consider the sovereignty of God over the events of human history. I was thinking about this as it related to Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today. Uh, On Palm Sunday, we're reminded that Jesus is our King, But we're also reminded that he achieves his victories in unexpected ways, right? He doesn't come into Jerusalem on a white stallion wielding a sword. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was accomplishing a victory that was very different than what the people expected. And I can't help but think about that with Ezra as well. Just when all seems lost, a feeble remnant still living there in Babylon, true to the Lord, But then God uses a foreign, unbelieving king to unknowingly advance his rescue plan. It's good for us to rehearse the sovereignty of God in the midst of this world's chaos. Number five, respond to God's word. Respond to God's word. Ezra was well-versed in the law. This, again, was his passion to teach the people God's laws. And those... Laws of God, God's word, were his very breathed out words. They were life-giving words. God's word is powerful. God's word is powerful to bring about change in the hearts and lives of people. And we see it very clearly in chapter 9. After these things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. 
When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. So Ezra comes to Jerusalem 60 years after Zerubbabel, and he finds that many of the people were not living according to God's word. And, and the, the, the really specific case study is this area of intermarriage with uh, the, the people of the land. We have to be very clear here. This is not uh, a statement about interracial marriage. We have plenty of examples of interracial marriage uh, that is uh, approved by, by God. Uh, the issue here, the problem here, is interreligious marriage, right? God's people were not to marry those who worshipped other gods. And this had led them astray. This is the whole issue that led them astray to begin with, with Solomon, right? And his many wives who worshipped various gods. Ezra was deeply troubled by this, and many of the people also trembled at the words of the God of Israel. So Ezra taught the word and it brought them under conviction of sin and they turned from their sin. They didn't just feel bad. They turned from their sin. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. It wasn't enough that they just felt bad right oh felt under conviction he says do his will like change respond you know what god's law says respond to it do his will and they undertake a very radical action they put away their wives and their foreign wives and their children hard for us to even think about that it runs contrary to our sensibilities of compassion i don't know what happened to those wives and those children, were they left destitute? We, we, we don't know. Uh, but there was a very specific law here that was at play, and the people responded to God's word. It was genuine repentance, not just, again, a, a guilty feeling, but a turning from their sin. And this, too, was a, a mark of a people that uh, are restored from exile. An acknowledgement of sin, a confession of sin, a turning from sin. This, this needs to be our pattern as we seek to cultivate right relationships and fellowship with God. A few uh, brief gospel glimpses here. Uh, God preserves the line of the promised deliverer. Zerubbabel is the grandson of King Jeconiah, the last king in Israel before the exile. And Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David. So it's very significant that Zerubbabel is highlighted among the many genealogies here. 
uh, the promise of the Messiah that would come through David, a forever king uh, who would come from his line. And Ezra is the priest, uh, and he foreshadows the greater priestly work of Christ on behalf of the people. So uh, Ezra, again, reminds us of God's unfailing love. God doesn't cancel us. Despite of how persistent our sin, he restores us.